0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. And uh, it's that time. Last time I was here, it was Christmas Eve. And so thanks for some time away, we went to Kansas City and saw Madonna's people up there in Blue Springs, Missouri. You can tell them some things, but you can't tell them much in Missouri. It's the show-me state. And it works, she and I, because I'm from West Virginia and we're as hard-headed as they are. Uh, So... It works out pretty well. We had a great time. I'm always a little bit nervous about going to Kansas City in the winter uh, because it's cold there and a lot of you know what that is. And since I've lived here for an, almost 10 years, if it gets below 50, then it's just, all bets are off, I'm staying in the house. <laughs> I got a hoodie on. It's cold, right? Well, Happy New Year, glad, glad that you're here. Hey, if you're here this morning because of a New Year's resolution, uh, it's your first time in church, uh, maybe for a long time, or maybe ever welcome we 're really glad that you 're here this morning. you chose to come here. Thank you for that. We hope that you 'll come back in the weeks to come and make some friends. We would love to see you and get to know you a bit more let 's open our Bibles together this morning to Acts chapter twelve in December. We took a little break we 've been studying through Acts and we took a break for Christmas and looked at the prophet Isaiah and the coming of Jesus, his birth and his life and ministry, and his second coming and now we 're coming back to the book of Acts and the New Testament. It's on page 920. If you're using the Bible there in the pew rack, you can find that text, Acts chapter 12. Early this week, there's been a lot of things going on in the news. Early this week, uh, did you notice the story in China about a pastor who has been imprisoned for nine years? Uh, The Chinese authorities brought two charges against him, subversion of state power and illegal business operations. Now, this is the pastor of a local church. Wang Yi uh, is not the first Chinese pastor to ever be imprisoned, and he will not be the last, if history tells us anything. And we read stories like this, and, and we tend to pray for a brother who is in trouble, and thank God that nothing like that will ever happen here. But the truth of the matter is, more and more, Christian beliefs, the doctrine of the scriptures is not just seen as something that's dated nowadays, it's seen as something that's really dangerous. In fact, experts advise churches like Foothills to write their governing documents in such a way that they carefully line up with what the church stated teachings are, what our doctrinal beliefs are, to avoid any potential lawsuits regarding employment issues or the use of our facilities. And to make it personal, some of you may work in a place where you have a, a manager over you, a supervisor, a boss, and, and perhaps they would call you in and say, you know, I don't want you to talk about your faith in Jesus anymore with anybody here. No one in the office or wherever it's at. I don't want you to talk about that. Even though you've been very careful not to do that on work hours, been very careful about where you do that, how that conversation comes up, the issue in this text is really about those kinds of things. It's about the conflict between God and his purposes in the world and the world, the authorities in the world, and the conflict between those two things. The early church certainly experienced that, and we've seen it already in Acts, and we'll see more of it after we leave chapter 12. But we've seen that as well not just in the U.S., but we see it around the world. I've entitled this message, The Tale of Two Kings. In this chapter, there's a lot of things going on. There's an angel, there are apostles, there's a servant girl, there's a prayer meeting, there's a crowd of desperate people looking for the help from a dictator. But right in the middle of all of that are these two kings, God and a man named Herod. When John Stott, the British pastor, wrote about this chapter, he, he said this. Uh, At the beginning of this chapter, as it opens, James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod is triumphing. In the end, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the Word of God is triumphing. It's like bookends. And you'll see that as we read through the passage. Acts 12 makes it clear. And if you want to know, hey, what's the big idea of the passage, this is it. It makes it clear. Jesus is building his church. And the authority and power of the state cannot stop the spread of the word of God. Jesus is building his church. And the authority or the power of the state, any state cannot stop the spread of the word of God. And so as we look through this chapter, there are three lessons that I think we can learn. There are probably many more, but there are three that, that I have dug out for us and sought to apply in my own life. The first one is the superiority of God's purposes in the world. The second is, is this. It's, it's, it's the reality of spiritual warfare in the world. The third is the mystery of God's sovereignty in our lives. And so I want to pull those three out as we walk through the chapter. So let's read the chapter. It's verses 1 through verse 24. We're going to stop short of verse 25, the last verse. I think it goes with what comes after it. All right, so here we go. This is Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now let me pause for a moment. About that time. If you'll remember, if you've been with us, we've been studying through Acts. We stopped at chapter 11, the last verse. You see Barnabas and Saul bringing an offering to the church in Jerusalem from a place 300 miles away, Antioch. A brand new church full of Greek Gentile Christians has emerged up there. And they're sending an offering to the people, the believers the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas and Saul bring it. You don't hear any more about that until you get to verse 25 of chapter 12. And all of a sudden, you see Barnabas and Saul going back to Antioch, having given the offering. In other words, it almost feels like when you get to the first verse of chapter 12, that there's an interruption in the flow of what's happening. Because it's all about Antioch through verse 30 of chapter 11, and it picks up at the end of chapter 12. And it goes on into chapter 13 about Antioch. But we have this little segue here and it's here for a reason and we're going to see it as we walk through it. So about that time, about the time that this offering is happening, Herod the king lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover To bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him and said, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. It's like a dad coming into the eight-year-old son's bedroom in the morning saying, let's go. And just stepping him through it one piece at a time. It's the middle of the night. And look at what happens. He, he follows him out. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, just like leaving Safeway. <laughs> and they went out. It is. It opened for them on, their own, on its own accord. It just flew open. And they went out and they went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice (laughs) in her joy, she, she ran back. she didn't open the gate. she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, "You're out of your mind." But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, "Well, it's his angel." And there was this Jewish belief it might be in one of your study Bibles, if you have one. There's this Jewish belief that, that people had an angel, and at times the angel could show up and look like that person or sound like that person. It was his angel. And she's keeping insisting, and Peter is still knocking. And when they finally go, they open, they see him, they're amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. James, the one who wrote the letter of James at the end of the New Testament, the half-brother of Jesus. Tell these things to James and the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, says that Peter went underground and nobody is quite sure where he went. He just kind of disappears for a period of time. And now there's a shift in time, it seems, and certainly of focus. But this all belongs together. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because the country, their country, depended on the king's country for food. So some sort of conflict is going on. Herod is upset with these people. They're pleading they need some help. And so on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. And Josephus says they were literally made of silver. They captured the brilliance of the sun as it rose. So he's dressed for the part. He took his seat on the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And verse 22, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Something that many of you run out of here and say Sunday after Sunday, I'm sure. (laughs) Sorry. But look at this, because it's really not very funny. It's probably an ill-timed joke. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Father, we thank you for this historical scene, this moment in the life of the early church. And we uh, thank you that even at the beginning Where we see death, we see this deliverance in the middle, and then we see the progress of the gospel continuing in the midst of it all. Lord, help us open our eyes to see the truth, open our hearts and our ears to hear it and apply it to our lives so that we go out different than when we came in. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's the first lesson? The first lesson is this. We should act on the superiority of God's purposes in the world We see that, and it's all through the passage. This Herod is Agrippa I. He is the puppet king of the Romans in Judea. His grandfather is Herod the Great, the one who ordered the death of the newborn babies in Bethlehem right after Jesus was born. He's the nephew of Herod the Tetrarch who had John the Baptist killed. You've got three Herods. There's not a good guy among them. They all have this kind of anti-Christ bent And this Herod wants to rid Jerusalem of the church and so he kills James. And when he sees that the people are happy with that, he imprisons Peter and he plans his death. It's like state-sponsored terrorism against the church. And you can imagine that at street level, this king, this Herod appears to be very powerful to the people in the church. And you can imagine the intimidation they feel and the fear they feel and the grief that they're feeling because two of their leaders, are seemingly gone. James is dead and Peter is in prison and you remember Peter James and John that trio of men the inner circle of Jesus. This is a big deal. And the church had to be shuddering with fear and intimidation. Herod is the king. He has soldiers and prisons and executioners. He's king, but he's not God and his purposes are not superior to our lords. God takes his prized prisoner right out from under his nose, doesn't he? I mean, can you imagine? that? Here is Peter locked inside of prison gates and inside of those locked prison gates, he's inside of a cell where he's locked and he's inside of that locked cell, inside of those locked prison gates, he's chained up to two guards and in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord walks in, knocks him awake and says, get your stuff, we're leaving. And out they go. And Herod searches, but he can't find him. And those poor sentries and guards who had no clue about what happened pay the price and they die. And Herod goes off for some R&R down to Caesarea. It is all so matter of fact. He still thinks he's the glorious one even though he just got humiliated and one of his prized prisoners just got taken away from him. And so now later he dresses the part. He's going to deal with these people in Tyre and Sidon. And he puts on his royal robes and he sits on his throne and he makes his speech and desperate people flatter him. And instead of redirecting their praise or refusing it altogether, he takes God's glory for himself. And God judges him for that. He killed James But God judges him because he steps up and takes God's glory for himself. And it's ironic that the man who appears to be glorious on the outside is eaten by worms on the inside. And the summary of all of this is that the word of God increased and multiplied. It's not that someone somewhere was printing more Bibles. It's that the people of God boldly kept proclaiming the gospel the word of God increased, it multiplied. It's very similar summary to Acts chapter 6, verse 7 that we saw there. The church faithfully, obediently carried out their calling to get the God's word out to the people. And you know, when you face trouble and when difficulties come in sharing the gospel and telling the gospel to others, if you're not certain of the superiority of God's purposes, why would we bother? Why would we keep on doing that? If we didn't know that in the end, he wins. In the end, God's purposes are gonna prevail. Why wouldn't we just quit? And sometimes you might feel that way because sometimes in the midst of sharing the gospel, you feel like you're losing because you're talking to people and you're trying to have gospel conversations. You're trying to faithfully, consistently live out your faith in Christ, but you're met with disinterest or some antagonism Lots of questions that maybe you don't feel like you have the answers for. Or there's just this immense pressure to fit in and not to make waves. And so the urge is strong to just keep quiet. Just keep quiet. And this church here in Acts 12, they faced a different level of persecution altogether, didn't they? I mean, James is dead. Peter is in prison. That hasn't happened to any of us. And like many believers around the world today, that's where they were at. And that's where many of our brothers and sisters are at. I began with the story of Wang Yi, a Chinese pastor who's been imprisoned. But that's true in many nations around the world. Many believers around the world live in places where the government steps in at will, on a whim, and will fine you, or take your building, or imprison your leaders, or just disappear them altogether. There are places in the world where the laws are written so as to disadvantage those who would name the name of Christ, and so your children are not going to get the same quality education as these other children, and your children are not going to be able to live in a better part of town because you're not allowed to live there, and you couldn't afford to live there anyway because you're also limited vocationally according to the laws of the land. And so there are believers all over the world facing these things and these Christians here in Acts 12 understood what persecution and pressure was all about like many of our brothers and sisters around the world do today. And what's interesting to me as I look at this and think about the fact that they acted on the superiority of God's purposes in the world. They were not misled somehow. They certainly didn't betray feeling misled that God is real or that he's present with them. Or that he's in control, that he's sovereign. They just kept right on. They remained faithful to their calling in spite of the opposition. They acted on the superiority of God's purposes in the world. That's what we have to do. Every time we meet with antagonism, every time we meet with opposition, every time we meet with disinterest, we should continue on because God's purposes will prevail. People will come to know Jesus. People will follow Christ. We should continue to walk forward in that. What's the second lesson? The second lesson is this, that we ought to confess the reality of spiritual warfare in the world. There is more in this chapter than meets the eye. We can look at Herod and blame him for the death of James. We can blame him for the imprisonment of Peter. But there are evil forces at work behind all of that. And this chapter spells out the reality of spiritual warfare. And you can go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 3 and you see it happening there. Moments after humanity falls into sin before God, they take that fruit that was forbidden, God steps onto the scene and he speaks to the tempter, he speaks to the serpent. He speaks to Eve as well, he tells her that she's going to have an offspring, she's going to have a child and then he looks at the tempter, the serpent, and he says, you're gonna bruise his heel but he's gonna crush your head. In that moment, God declares war, between the seed of the woman and the serpent. He says there's going to be enmity between them. And the rest of the Bible is the story of that conflict between the serpent and the seed. And when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, born of a woman, he is the seed promised in Genesis 3. And Jesus lives his life faithfully before God the Father without any sin, he lives pleasing God in every way. And he gives his sinless life in our place on the cross for our sins, and he dies. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. The father vindicates his perfect sacrifice for our sins. And when he does that, the enemy is defeated, the scriptures tell us. And so why is it then that there's still enmity, there's still conflict between the seed of the woman as it were, and the evil one, the serpent. It's because Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. When you come to faith in Christ, you become the adopted son or daughter of God, but you also become a target of the evil one. And so, when we look at this chapter, when we see this conflict in Acts 12, we see it as spiritual warfare. It's very real. Spiritual warfare is anytime the enemy, directly or indirectly, seeks to discourage the church or distract the church from her mission in the world or to destroy the church just outright. And we see that happening in this text. He can use individuals, he can use groups of people, he can even operate through the state to accomplish his purposes. I believe that what we saw happen last Sunday in Texas when a man came into a church And pulled a weapon and shot people and killed them. That's spiritual warfare. You say, well, how could you possibly know that? You don't know what that man's thinking. You're exactly right. I don't know what he was thinking. I doubt that anybody will ever really understand what he was thinking. You know why it's spiritual warfare? Because that man came into a church and he killed people. He came in with an intent in his mind, an evil intent. And Satan can use that to discourage a church, to dishearten people to distract them from their mission. And so we ought to pray for that church that they wouldn't be so. That's spiritual warfare. How did this church in Acts 12 respond to the spiritual warfare all around them? Well, they they prayed. They engaged it. They confessed that there was spiritual warfare through their earnest prayers. You saw it in verse 5. It says their earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. Earnest describes the way that they prayed. The the word really pictures hands stretched out, saying, deliver Peter. They're crying out to God. They, They feel Herod hitting his evil stride. And their hearts are filled with grief over James' death. And it's mixed with an urgency about the fact that Peter is in prison. And then they look at Herod again, the king, who seems to be so powerful. And they know they can't do anything except to pray earnestly and cry out to God with their arms stretched out, saying, deliver Peter. It's ironic to me that those prison doors swing open for him on their own. And when he shows up at Mary's house and he knocks, the meeting where they're praying for his release, it's locked. He can't get in. And then poor Rhoda, bless her heart, she goes to the door. She hears his voice. She runs back. She's just so excited. And she can't get a hearing. They tell her she's crazy. You know, every time I read this story, I think, those, those poor people, you know, they, they were praying. I get they were praying. It says they were earnestly praying. They didn't really believe what they were praying, did they? I think they really believed what they were praying. I think they were totally sincere, earnestly praying that God would deliver. Why in the world were they taken so flat-footed? Why were they taken by surprise by all of this? I, I, think, it's, I think it's a snapshot of what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. He said, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. Amen. They're praying earnestly. They're praying desperately for Peter's release. And God answers their prayers in a way they couldn't even imagine. We confess the reality of spiritual warfare through earnest prayers. John Piper wrote this. He said, you do not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. He was pressing into the idea that many of our prayers center around kind of common, ordinary sorts of things. Lord, help me find my keys. Give me a good parking place. Lord, I have this presentation. It's really important. I'm praying that you would get that. God, can I please get this raise? I'm asking for that. We pray for important things. We pray for other things, but, but Piper is pressing in, and I think this passage is calling us to press in, to pray earnestly for the kinds of things that John taught about last week from Luke 11. Pray earnestly. Father, your name be hallowed. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven to pray those kinds of epic prayers father may the interest of jesus be served in my life in every way in the life of our nation in every way we ought to pray that way for whom or for what are you praying when you pray that way you're engaged in spiritual warfare are you praying for a friend or a coworker who needs jesus believe me it's spiritual warfare to pray that way are you praying for a spouse or a family member who's very far from god When you pray that way, you're entering into spiritual warfare. Our witness to the world begins on our knees before the God who saves. And so anytime you pray, anytime you pray for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're engaged in spiritual warfare. What's the third lesson? To wrestle with the mystery of God's sovereignty in our lives it's obvious that there is a tension in this passage and you probably wondered if I was going to say anything about it because there's death here and there's deliverance. And they sit right here in the same text and it ought to cause us some discomfort because we see the church praying earnestly for Peter to be released and God releases him but James is killed. Why is that? I mean, don't you imagine that the church prayed for James the way they prayed for Peter? Peter? It fills our heads with all kinds of questions. Why didn't God deliver James the way he delivered Peter? Does God love Peter more than he loves James? Was Peter more faithful than James? And that's why he was there. Why didn't God spare the church? All of that pain and grief, all of the intimidation and fear that they must have faced. Why didn't God spare his own people that? By delivering James and keeping Peter just out of prison from the very beginning. Why didn't he do that? We wrestle with those kinds of things. It's the mystery of the sovereignty of God, the tension of this life until Christ comes again because things like death and deliverance are in God's hands. They're not in our hands. And this passage isn't here to give you and me a formula for how to get deliverance and not get death. That's not what it's teaching us. In fact, it is teaching us that even when we get into trouble and even when death comes, that is not a sign that God is somehow not sovereign and not in control, that God is somehow not near and present with us, that he doesn't love you. That's not what the passage is teaching us at all. God loved James, and when he died, he was welcomed into the presence of Jesus. And God loved Peter, and on this day, that looked like an angel setting him free from prison. You know, about 20 years later, Peter would be martyred, hung on a cross upside down. I'm sure the church was praying for him then. We wrestle with the mystery of God's sovereignty in this world. Acts 12 teaches you and me that God is not in heaven sitting on his throne playing favorites. He's not punishing you for failing to be all that you Ought to be when you land in trouble and when you face difficulties or when you go through death. Because the other side of the coin, if you think that way, the other side of the coin is this. You might start to believe that the good you've received in your life is because you've been good. Because you're so good that somehow you've earned it, you deserve it. And it fosters that kind of thinking. But that's not who God is, that's not the way God works. All of the good that you and I have ever done in our lives has been enabled by the grace of God. It's only God's grace that we ever do anything good. God loves his people. God is faithful to his people. But that does not always look the way we want it to look in this life. And while we don't know whether we'll get deliverance or death, there are some things that we know as believers in Jesus As a Christian, there are some things that you know that you you just put your feet down in that spot. You set your anchor there because you know that they're true. We know that we've been that we've died, we've died to our sins and we've been raised to life in Christ. We we heard that passage quoted earlier in 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 the service. We know that we used to be captive and imprisoned to sin but now because of the son, we've been set free and we know that in this world, Jesus said you will have tribulation but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. That verse doesn't say that you won't ever have trouble. It says you will have trouble in the world but don't fret it. Because I've overcome the world. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not peril, not danger, not not the sword, not famine, not nakedness, not anything. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in that moment, whatever it is that brings you into the presence of the Lord, whatever it is, It won't matter anymore because when you are there standing in the presence of Jesus, all that will matter is that you are at home with the one who died and rose from the dead to save your soul. In that moment, that's what will matter. And perhaps in this moment or maybe in recent days, you've found yourself praying for a loved one, for a friend and you've been asking God to deliver them And it didn't happen. It hasn't happened. And then you hear someone share their story of how they prayed for a loved one or a friend. And they asked God to deliver them, and they were. And it's in moments like that we wrestle with the sovereignty of God, right? In moments like that, sometimes we feel like our heart shrinks just a little. And we look up to heaven with a real question. God, do you you just love them more? We wrestle with the mystery of God's sovereignty. There is triumph and there is tragedy in this life. But whatever experiences God sovereignly brings us through in this life, our calling, just like the calling of these people in Acts 12, our calling is to bring our Heavenly Father glory by being faithfully obedient to him at every moment. Peter was imprisoned, James was martyred, and the church persevered they did not pull back from their calling even in the face of all of this trouble to proclaim the gospel this morning we turn our attention to the lord's table to the lord's supper and and this is a special time i want you to think about it with me and for those of you that have kids with you you know that as we talk about the lord's supper the bread and the cup That as we take these elements, they're for believers, people who have come to faith in Christ. And so if you're here today and you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, just allow these elements to pass. It's part of our worship experience. It's a testimony of our faith, a statement of our faith, that we take the bread and the cup. If you've not come to that point yet, that's fine. Just allow them to pass this morning. But I think it's really important for us to think about this in terms of this text Because what we ought to do this morning is give thanks as we take the bread and the cup. We ought to give thanks that Jesus didn't pull back from his calling in the garden. In the face of so much opposition, where his sweat came off of his body like great drops of blood, Jesus did not pull back. He acted on the superiority of God's purposes in the world. He confessed the fact that there is spiritual warfare going on because he kneeled down, face down, in the dirt, in the garden, and he cried out to the Lord, and he wrestled with the sovereignty of God. Lord, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus proceeded to walk in faithful obedience to the Father. And because he did, he saved us. And because he rose from the dead, his grace enables us to live every single day by his power through triumph or tragedy and to get all the way home for his glory. So let's think on those things as we take the bread and the cup, all right? I'm gonna ask the guys to go ahead and serve it and as they do, we'll just be quiet for a few moments. I'm gonna give you the opportunity to give God thanks for the bread and the cup, to give him thanks, Jesus, for saving us, for being obedient faithfully to the Father and for his grace that enables us to live even in the face of trouble, trusting him no matter what.